0: You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future. But until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading.
1: Today's reading comes from Matthew, chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good.
0: honor and pleasure to be with you this morning, Christ Church. Let's pray as we go into the word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your inerrant, infallible word. We thank you for its teaching and its truth, its conviction upon our hearts. Lord, as we read from Matthew 18, we thank you for the words that have been preserved by your grace, your mercy, and your providence. We ask, O oh Lord, that although the vessel which we'll speak today is broken and tainted, Lord, that the words that are spoken will be true honorable to you, and would be convicting to the hearts in this place that they would grow in Christ-likeness and grow in their holiness and grow in their love and deep uh, care uh, for you and for one another. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Today's sermon is entitled The Kingdom of Children. We read from Matthew 18, and as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we've seen um, a lot of different uh, discourses and teachings within the Gospel of Mark, uh, Matthew. So I keep, I'm going to say Mark a few times. Our church is going through Mark, so I'm going to confuse it. But uh, there are five discourses that we find in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we find, of course, the famous Sermon on the Mount, marked in Matthew 5 to 7, which I'm sure you went through, and various other discourses, this being the discourse on the church. We find in Matthew 18, running into 19, verse 1. And this discourse that Jesus gives us, this teaching or this sermon, if you will, uh, comes as the disciples go to Jesus and ask him this central question. And this central question will frame uh, everything that we will learn today. So this question that is posed to Jesus is this question that we find in verse 1. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, I don't know what your YouTube algorithm looks like, but mine is just littered with uh, politics and world news. It's one of the interests that I have in life, history, politics, and world news. And so this week, uh, I don't know if you have this part, uh, this part of your algorithm, uh, but I've been watching a lot of these uh, short YouTube clips On these conversations or these debates that have been happening in the House of Commons in Canada, between our Prime Minister Trudeau and the opposition uh, party leader, right, Pierre, I'm not going to pretend that I even know French. His uh, Poliev, right? There's a French way to pronounce this, but uh, I'm not really the greatest in that. (laughs) And they're debating in this short clip. Um, What makes Canada great? And Trudeau has this really uh, funny line. He says, well, you know, the opposition would have Canada, uh, are trying to make Canada great again. Of course, that's a play on what Trump was doing in, in America. And the opposition leader stands up and says, well, Trudeau, you think Canada's great, but actually these are all the issues that are happening in this country. Of course, Trudeau stands up and says, well, actually, Canada's the greatest country in the world. And he makes this bold and insane claim. I live in Canada. I love this country. I don't mean to degrade the nation in any way, but certainly greatness is measured differently. And sure, in the in the minds of the party in power, sure, they could say because they are the majority or they are the government that perhaps in their eyes this country is the greatest, but certainly greatest, and the term great itself and greatness is measured differently depending on who you are, where you are, and in what time you live in. The world of course seeks to define greatness Because, I think innately within us all, in the sort of kingdoms that we exist in, whether it be nations or institutions, that we seek to be great. And we define greatness quite poorly. Keller, on his sermon on Matthew 18, he says, we measure greatness on variables that don't guarantee greatness. And so what we find here is this incredible contrast and juxtaposition between what the world and the earth and humanity would define as great and what the disciples are seeking when they ask this question of who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and what Jesus defines as great in the kingdom. Now, in our church, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark and it's been kind of fun Uh, walking alongside or hearing the sermons here at Christ Church on the Gospel of Matthew and then seeing the parallels in the Gospel of Mark. And in in Mark, we have this incredible journey that Jesus goes on towards Jerusalem. And as he goes towards the cross and he walks there, he teaches his disciples on this sort of reversal ideology, this idea that the kingdom is a reversal of so many things that we think are right as human beings in our society. And of course, he's referring to, at that time, uh, the, the, the Jewish ideology and the thought that existed in Galilee. So this question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, frames and will frame our understanding of today's text. We find, of course, the disciples seeking to be great in many other texts in the Gospels, in Luke 9, Mark 9, Mark 10. We have episodes where James and John would come to Jesus and see, can we be on your right and your left? We have other episodes where uh, the parallel texts, uh, for example, in, in, in Mark 10 and in Luke 9, where the disciples come and ask who then is the greatest. This seems to be something that is on their hearts, that there's a desire within themselves to be great and, in fact, the greatest. We saw in chapter 17 the transfiguration you can imagine how extraordinary that must have been even you know despite the fact that they saw the feeding of the multitudes and miracle after miracle and healing after healing and 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 exorcisms uh, performed by jesus and all these incredible works of god that they observed jesus perform and do in front of their own eyes to observe the four of those men the transfiguration to see elijah and moses appear before them speaking to jesus seeing this incredible transfiguration occur in their master must have been amazing and you can imagine what they must have thought now as a new testament christian we might read that and see and think that the conclusion that can only be drawn is that this is the messiah the son of god the one who came to save us the lamb of god who came to take away sin Don't lose sight of the fact that these men had their own line of thinking. These are Jewish men who grew up in a culture and a time with teaching that deviated them away from the true understanding of who the Christ and the Messiah was and would be. Their hopes were to be great because their thinking In seeing the transfiguration, in seeing the miracles, in seeing Jesus challenging the officials and the Roman courts, they're thinking David versus Goliath. They're thinking earthly kingdom. They're thinking state. They're thinking land. They're thinking from a Jewish thought, this this restoration of Israel, the nation, the country, the people, to have its own kingdom and borders once again, to have this own sort of reign and rule. And this king, this Jesus, this Messiah, this Christ that they were waiting for would usher this in. And their hope would be as being one of the twelve, That they would be one of those people who would stand right next to him on his throne. That they would be one of the greatest, if not the greatest, in that kingdom. They're thinking on earthly terms instead of heavenly ones. And so at the core of this question, friends, although you might read this question and think not much of it, the core of this question, and Jesus' answer reveals to us the reality of this, is that they're asking from a place of pride. That what is lacking here in the question that is posed to Jesus is a humility which Jesus will now address. So Jesus in response, and if you read the response in this discourse, it's interesting. He doesn't explicitly, at least in my reading, answer the question directly. There is a direct answer to it, but it's given almost implicitly. And so he brings this child to him. He calls for this child to come to him. And uh, we'll talk about children because it's really the central term of this entire text that we read today. But I'd like to frame our understanding of today's text with three sort of guiding points. The first is we are to become like children. We meaning, of course, us believers, the church. We are to treat children in a certain way. And there's a literal reading of this as well as, I think, the grander spiritual meaning of this. And then, of course, we are to remember whose children we are. Whose children we are. Who is our father? Right? We just prayed the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. We are his children. So three points. I'd like to draw your attention to verses 3 to 4 to begin. Before we can think of being great, Jesus tells us, we must think of how one even enters the kingdom. See, these disciples are just assuming I will be in the kingdom. How can I be the greatest in it? And Jesus' response is, well, let's talk about entrance first, right? And the child, of course, that is brought to Jesus represents very clearly to us, uh, indicated within the text, believers, Right? He talks about uh, in verse 6: whoever causes one of these little ones, the children, who believe in me. So we're talking about children as being sort of representatives, metaphors of believers. Later that metaphor will shift to the sheep, the lost sheep that Jesus goes after or that God goes after. So we can think of being great, but we need to consider first and foremost how one enters. And so this child is brought to him. And Jesus points to this child, and you got to understand that there's something interesting going on here in this image, because it would have been quite—I uh, don't want to say as far as controversial, but at least confusing—in the eyes of—in uh, the eyes of the disciples. Uh, one of the most common uh, ways that the New Testament refers to believers. Uh, the term that is used most commonly in the New Testament is, is children or little ones. It's a synonymous term. We find it, for example, in John 13, verses 31 to 35, as Jesus addresses um, on the, uh, um, close to the night of his death uh, his disciples. He brings, he brings them to him, and he teaches them, and he refers to him as my little children. Right? Uh, Carson has this note or commentary on this particular verse, and he says, little children can literally be translated as my little children, dear little children. Right? His believers, his beloved, his disciples, those who follow and trust in him. So the teaching here is simple. Believers are to be childlike. But in what ways? For we don't want to be totally childlike in every way that a child is a child. There's a certain way, a certain quality about children that we are to mimic and we are to follow and to become like so that we can enter the kingdom. So in what way are we to be childlike? We examined this uh, particular parallel text in Mark 9 in our church, and we came to this conclusion that children have pros, they have cons. I'm not a parent yet. Our church just experienced our first uh, our first birth in our church, so our first parents in our church, and it's been exciting for us to see. And no matter what this child does, uh, the brother that uh, is father to this child uh, was calling him this week, and he's just... He's just losing every hour of sleep that he ever wanted, and uh, he's, he's tired, and I'm sure many of you who are parents understand this reality, and he's, and he's like, oh, man, I don't know if I got have a second one. I'm like, hey, man, this is a blessing, and uh, I was praying over him, and he's, yeah, physically tired, but incredibly, incredibly full of joy. Why? Because of this treasure in his hands. There is something, a quality to children that is so beautiful and what is beautiful about these children? What is the childlikeness that we ought to pursue? I think it's the dependency, right? The understanding of the need for parent, the need and care, the trust in the parent, the trust almost without having to even teach them. They understand innately that this is my guardian, this is the person who takes care of me, and I trust in them. This dependency that a child has is an extraordinary quality that I think Jesus is calling us to. But the quality that is specifically mentioned to us today is humility. To be humble like a child. What does this mean? Well, if you look at children, and I can't, again, I don't have my children of my own, but when I was a child, and I have a brother who's nine years younger, so I did observe some of his infancy, like, there's no idea of rank. Whatever age you are, whatever, you know, uh, whatever group you're found in, you just go to school and you make friends and you hang out together. There's this idea. There's there's no idea of finding and figuring out who's the alpha and who's you know who's to follow who, or and figuring out who is the greatest among us. We just realize we t- together as children that we are to play together, to be together, to tr- to just have fun together. There's a childlikeness, a humility, that perhaps is lacking when we grow older in our maturity. Perhaps because our minds begin to get poisoned with this idea of wanting to be great from an earthly perspective. So there's this childlike humility that Jesus calls us to mimic, to follow, and to pursue being like. It's the qualities of a child that I think we should look towards. Dependency, need of a guardian, uh, trust, and humility. Believers, the church needs to become what it's meant to be. Last week, we heard a sermon uh, from the end of Matthew 17. We saw Lyndon preach about this very interesting text. Um, We have the transfiguration, and the disciples are unable to heal this man who is possessed by a demon. And then this last part of Matthew 17 always perplexed me, this, this tax situation. And this tax situation is brought in, and what's taught us there is this conduct as believers in the world in light of the world, in, the, in light of the realities of the world that we live in, the civil authorities that we fall under, how we conduct ourselves as kingdom people within this earth. But what we're, doing, what we're being taught today is how we conduct ourselves as kingdom people in the kingdom, how one in the kingdom, as children of God, ought to conduct themselves. And so it's kind of juxtaposed in that way. It's a very interesting transition we see from the end of chapter 17 from earthly responsibilities shifting quickly into kingdom responsibilities. So here's our second point that, that helps us understand. And we get into verse 5 and ten, five to 10 here. And we see three things that we're told to do in light of these children. The first thing is to receive them in verse 5 in verse 6 to not stumble them and then in verse 10 to not despise them that last one's an interesting one we'll get there verse 5 to receive children jesus is inseparable from his children inseparable from his own how do we know this well macarthur has this sermon on 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 this particular text and he teaches this he teaches about paul's conversion he says look to paul's conversion What, what happens at paul's conversion on the road to damascus he's blinded and the light and the voice appear and jesus Uh, His Lord speaks to him and he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute, not Christians, me? Now, Paul was persecuting, we know this from the book of Acts, the Christians, right? The believers were the ones that he was actually, literally persecuting. But Jesus says, why do you persecute me? There's an interesting equivalence that's uh, that's occurring there in that language. Persecution of his children is persecution of Christ in some sense. Matthew 25 speaks to this. In verse 34, it reads, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty? And give you drink, and when did we see you, a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you, and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, "Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me." First Corinthians 12 teaches us that we are His body, that He is our head. Christ is inseparable to his own. And so we are to receive the little one, the children as if we are receiving Christ, as if it is him. For the ones who receive the children are the ones who receive Christ. Um, Being the good Korean that I am, I've been watching some Korean dramas, actually just one in particular. Uh, I don't mean to promote watching Korean dramas. It's not good for your health. But um, there is this particular drama in uh, Netflix called Captivating the King. And uh, I love Korean dramas that are just kind of take place in the old times. I don't really like the modern stuff. It's too romantic-y for me. Uh, But this particular drama has been pretty good. It's been captivating, as the title suggests. Um, And in this particular drama, there's this episode where there's this king, and he has a younger brother who's the grand prince of the country. And unfortunately, um, uh, uh, the Chinese dynasty requires, after conquering uh, the Korean land, uh, for the grand prince to move into Chinese territory. And so they take him as sort of their prize. So they say, king, we'll let you continue to rule this land, but we're taking your brother. And so they get separated, and they love each other dearly. And of course, in Korean ancient culture, if you're the king, you're the king. It doesn't matter about family, or like who your mother is, or who your sister is, or brother is. The king is the king, and everyone else is the subject. Um, and so as he's departing, there's this emotional scene where the king is hugging his younger brother. And this would be like unheard of right, in ancient times. Obviously, it's a drama. And he hugs him and he says, please come back. And, you know, he says all that spiel. But he says these words. He says, your hurt is my hurt. Your injuries are my injuries. Yes, I am your king, but you are my brother. We are inseparable. How wonderful it is to know that Christ, our king, our Lord, our savior, the son of God, is, yes, our king. But he isn't, as Kyle said, very much like an older brother to us, one who cares for us deeply. So we are to receive children, and we are to receive him. The second thing is to not stumble children. Now this could be taken literally, of course. I mean, many of you have children, obviously, and so we're not to stumble them. What does stumbling mean? In in some translations of your Bible, it'll say not to cause them to sin. And that's exactly what it means we get this uh teaching more explicitly for the church found in first corinthians 8 to 10 where paul speaks about not causing hindrance in others not doing anything that would cause stumbling in others that would cause others to feel or to to act in a certain way that would be transgression and sin before god instead paul calls us in galatians 6 to build up to carry together the burdens that we that we carry the sins of our life, that we are to confess these things to one another. Matthew 18, in two weeks from now, when Daniel preaches, he's going to talk to, talk to us about how we forgive one another. How to, how, how to address these uh, particular conflicts that we run into. How to love one another in that way. We're to build up, to edify, to carry together the burdens of our sins. And so we are not to cause sin, not to be a stumbling block, but instead to be a building block. Stumbling is expected instead. In, in verse 7, what does Jesus say? Woe to the world and its stumbling blocks. Stumbling blocks should be coming from the world, the sinful nature of this fallen world, not the church. Jesus reiterates, reiterates the words of Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, and he, and, he re, and he reiterates those words in verses 8 to 9, right, to cut off eye or foot, if it causes you to sin. And of course, this is hyperbolic language. This language is It is meant to be extreme. You're not literally supposed to cut off your hand or your foot. So please don't do that I'm not advocating for that But what it's talking about is the extremity of sin the depravity of it and the nature of it and How we ought to treat sin and in light of this how we should actually treat repentance how we should repent how the Christian is called to repent that instead of being a stumbling block to others and even to ourselves that we are to treat sin in the way that God views it, as completely disgusting, something intolerable. Another movie I was watching was this long time ago, it was this movie called 127 Hours. It's based on a true story of this man named Aaron Walston. Uh, he was cycling in the canyons, he falls down um, into one of like sort of the clefts and a boulder falls on his hand. And his arm gets stuck in this, uh, between this boulder and this canyon or this wall. And he, and he only has limited resource, like food and water. Um, and he's not able to, obviously, survive. And so at the very end of this, and the movie gives away how long uh, he's down there, it's 127 hours, but in the final hours of his uh, time there, he cuts off his hand. He cuts off his hand for what? Preservation of his earthly life. So friends, how much more should we treat our, our sin, that which takes away eternal life? We should be cutting off everything the causes stumbling in us. And even more so, the teaching is that we do not stumble others. And then in verse 10, do not despise the little ones. Don't despise them. Now, this was perplexing to me. And this was tricky for me to maneuver because who despises children? I mean, it's got to be one particular type of child to <laughs> cause you to despise them. Um, I don't. I don't particularly find myself despising children, so I wondered why. And this this word is an interesting one. It's it's this Greek word, katapherneo. It means to disrespect, to disdain, think a little of or nothing of. It's the word that's used in 1 Timothy 4.12, and Paul admonishes Timothy, and he says, let no one look down on you for your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. It's this idea of looking down on them. Now, why would, why would Jesus have inclination to say these words? Or why would he have to say these words to them? Well, the Jews had a particular understanding of the child, of the children. That's exactly why um, this whole episode begins with Jesus bringing this child to himself. It's this act that no rabbi would do, right? These children were looked down on, almost the lowest of society, right? You could rank them alongside... Gentiles, shepherds, um, women, right, were, were viewed and treated in this way with this disdain, this, this idea that, remember that episode where the, where the children are causing sort of disruption, and so the disciples are trying to shoo them away, and Jesus says, no, 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 bring the children to me. In Mark's parallel of this passage, he blesses them, he lays his hands on them, and he blesses the children, just as we did as we sent them off. So we aren't to despise or look down on children, for they have qualities, as Jesus just told us, that we are to mimic. The idea here, of course, is in light of repentance and understanding of sin, that it is not children we are to despise, but rather the sin of our lives. Now, if honest like truth be told, I wish Kyle just kind of ended my passage here, and I can kind of wrap it up with a gospel presentation and it would, be, uh, it would have been pretty easy for me for the past month. But these last verses uh, caused me a lot of, I don't want to say grief, but contemplation as to how this wraps up this entire discourse. Or it, it's not the end of the discourse, but at least this section of it. As this, These final verses, um, 12 to 14, and you'll note that verse 11 is in square brackets, so it's really supposed to be in Luke 19.10 in the earliest manuscripts. You can look that up. But these, this final parable where Jesus gives us the parable of lost sheep. And, of course, we find its parallel in Luke 16 with the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. The metaphor shifts from the parent-child relationship to the shepherd-sheep image. One is lost, one of the sheep, and the shepherd goes after this one lost sheep. And the the idea that's portrayed here is this relentless pursuit of the sheep, this concern, this genuine concern that this shepherd has. Just as I imagine, for those of you who are parents in this room, that if you had a multitude of children, or maybe a few of them, that if one was missing, you would go after them. It's not that you disregard the ones that aren't lost and you ignore them, but it's that the one who is lost is the one who is concerning you in that moment. Um, I'm a little bit of an annoying person, and so my wife will tell you this. Uh, whenever we do the laundry there's always something that gets lost and it's always a sock isn't it like i don't even know how that happens but it's always a sock or a piece of like some piece uh, a small piece of clothing some fabric right something always gets lost so i'm the kind of person that labels everything in my house i want to know where everything is at all the time right that whole parable of lost coin that drives me nuts like that's exactly who i would be right i flip everything to find that lost coin now if i'm relentless in my pursuit of finding a lost sock and that's somewhat impressive to you that, wow, he really cares about that one lost sock. Friends, when we read that the Father's will and heart, that his love would have him find this lost sheep and bring him home. I mean, certainly we're more than a sock, are we not? The basis of our entrance into the kingdom is God. His pursuit of us. He allows us in. The basis of our conduct in his kingdom is God, the king of that kingdom. We enter because God permits us by his grace. We treat each other correctly, love God, love neighbor, in light of this reality. By God's grace, because God allows and permits. Friends, greatness in the kingdom is nothing like greatness on this earth. It's nothing like it. So who then is the greatest in the kingdom? I wish Jesus just gave us the answer plainly. The answer is Jesus. The answer is God, the King Himself, the King of the kingdom. And how fitting is it that He brings this child to Himself and says, Become like it. Because this Jesus, this Son of God, He is the one who became a child for us. He took on flesh, He became a child, He lived a life on this earth, but then He died for us. He died the death that we deserve. And what does that tell you? That the sinless would take on the sinner's cross and die on our behalf, paying the price that you and I deserve. Friends, that's humility. Who then is the most humble in the kingdom, I might ask? It's Jesus. Philippians 2.6, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. If you're sitting here today and perhaps contemplating and considering the Christian gospel, I urge you, to see the heart and love of god in this text to know and, and know this to be true that god goes after his loss and not only that at the very end of this passage we see an incredible promise that those he calls his own the children of god the sheep of his fold will never perish he holds fast to them he brings them home and He keeps them there and we're never lost again this is the incredible promise and truth of the gospel so long as you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Our Savior and Lord who came and died for us and rose from that grave ascended into the heavens and he will come again so praise be to that God praise be to Jesus become like children friends humble yourselves treat each other like the children of God and always remember that we are God's children and our Father in heaven was pleased to save us so that we would not perish let's bow our heads in prayer God we thank you for this word this morning we thank you for its teaching Pray and hope that it's been edifying to us all. The Spirit has convicted us in ways that no word from my mouth ever could. We thank you for everything that you bestow to us by your grace and your mercy, entrance into the kingdom, behavior and conduct that is fitting, and ultimately this knowledge and trust and faith in Jesus who has allowed us as our good shepherd to be entered into the fold. We thank you so much and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristchurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristchurchToronto.ca.